The Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. A new pod on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from the Alberta Advantage. Guest host Aaron Giovanni of Sweater Weather interviews Andrew Jackson about his new book and a lifetime spent on the Canadian left. And that's the kind of content you get on Harbinger. Become a supporter of this uh, media network and get exclusive supporter-only content, as well as you just go and support a fantastic project at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. Recording today here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 Territory on the banks of the Kasiskasa Wanisipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is a friend of the pod and returning guest, Rob Houle. Rob, welcome uh, welcome back to the Progress Report. Hello, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite back. I hope you're keeping cool in this ridiculous heat dome that we find ourselves in. Uh trying to the best that we can as a, a family of five um it gets pretty tough when you got little ones and things like that but i'm sitting in my basement right now which um usually is much cooler but actually it's it's not that cool down here it's almost like i'm sitting in the living room so it's uh it's been a weird couple of days and a weird week and we can all thank climate change for the heat dome and uh, so recording here in the uh, the basement of, you know, Progress Alberta headquarters, I got to say the office is an absolutely incredible uh, <laughs> respite from this heat dome. I am very grateful, very, very grateful for uh, just how cool it is. And when I step out of the office at the end of the day, it's always like shocking, like how fucking hot it is. But uh but uh yeah this is this is the the context that we find ourselves in there's there's that uh, meme going around of like this is the hottest summer ever and it's like no son this is the coldest summer for the rest of your life <laughs> it uh i went outside for a little bit it is yeah it's it's nasty out there and you can only help but think of maybe are less fortunate that are struggling in these times and, and facing it on a day to day. And uh, I hope they're getting all the supports that they need and people need to do um, all that they can to make sure that we're helping each other out during these crazy ups and downs of heat and whatever else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How about your folks? If people need water, you know, get some water. So uh, for folks that are listening, we are like a content warning here. We are going to be talking about residential schools. We are going to be talking about the genocidal legacy of Canada and the Canadian state. Uh, so if, if you don't want to listen, by all means. But we are going to be getting into some details. Later on, we're going to be talking about some pretty gruesome stuff that happened, you know, medical experiments, forced sterilization. So that's going to be coming up later in the pod as well. So just, just an FYI for folks who are listening. Uh, but yeah, Rob you know, we are likely going to be releasing this pod on Canada Day. Uh, you know, the, the question of what is Canada Day, what are we celebrating when we celebrate Canada Day, has really been flipped on its head, you know, since the discovery of the 215 children at the Kamloops Indian Residential School and the subsequent finding of, you know, more children at these residential school burial, like unmarked graves. Um, you know, I think, this has started a conversation about what kind of country Canada is and what, what you are celebrating when you celebrate Canada Day, right? 
Well, I think it, it's definitely been a point of reflection and a point of um, conversation around, yeah, why, why do we celebrate Canada Day? Is it because it's it's the 4th of July's less, less successful kind of cousin? Or is it because there's a deep sense of nationalism and other things that happen on on July 1st? Or maybe it's, maybe we do it just because we've always been just done it and maybe we've been brainwashed to do some of it. And I think all of the stuff that's coming to the surface and will continue to come to the surface as we continue to do these explorations and searches will only, will only compound the issue. So I think it's, yeah, it's, we tried to do it on Canada 150, but um, it didn't get as much traction as I think people really hope for. But now I think we're seeing the ramifications and the buildup from that kind of movement and the the sheer audacity that we're seeing around um, what happened in these institutions and and the the generations that have been lost because of what had happened there. Yeah, I mean, I think Canada 150 is is an important milestone to talk about, right? I mean, I I think it was speaking per- purely personally, it's it was very important to see the counter programming of Canada 150 for me and to start doing the reading and the learning and reflection that was needed whenever that was, what, four years, five years ago. Um, just in my own kind of context. Yeah. Did it, was Canada 150 still an unabashed celebration of fucking Canadian nationalism? Yes. Uh, but, but I, I wouldn't discount it. I think Canada, the Canada 150 counter programming, was super important to get us to the point where we are now, where, you know, the consensus around, you know, Canada, the good Canada, the just, you know, seems to be, you know, cracking up in real time. Right. Well, I think, yeah, that's, uh, that's what we're seeing playing out. That's what we're seeing in the media stories that are coming out in the conversations in our own communities around. Uh, yeah. Maybe Canada isn't this glowing beacon of, justice and freedom and all these other things uh, that we've always said we were. Maybe we're actually um, much, much worse than that. Maybe we're a, a wolf in sheep's clothing and maybe there are entire populations in this country who, if we put them in front of a pedestal and in front of a microphone, would tell us what it's really like here. Um, and that can be jarring for a lot of people and especially devout Canadians and um and I think it's it's long past you. Yeah, I mean, if Canada wouldn't exist in its present form, you know, without the kidnapping and murder of Indigenous children, right? Like, we, white Canadians simply would not have the wealth and power and privilege that they have today if the residential school project, you know, never happened. And, you know, kind of thinking about that and realizing that, like, you are you know, as a white person, you are standing on the bodies of dead indigenous children is, is something to reflect on, which is why perhaps fireworks are not the best way to celebrate Canada Day. And this is, uh, you know, been a subject of much debate and concern. You know, you've got Aaron O'Toole whinging about, you know, a few cities canceling, quote unquote, canceling Canada Day by not having their their fire their typical fireworks celebrations. Um, 
you know, we've we had Nahed Nenshi, the mayor of Calgary, say that the fireworks that are happening on Canada Day, they're quote, they're not meant to be a celebration. They're meant to be an honoring of the children who have been lost and a commitment to the future. Uh, so, Rob, do you think these are happy fireworks or sad fireworks? Yeah, I was uh, chuckling last night when when some of those messages came into me and my social media and looking at the responses to, well, these aren't these aren't your your happy go lucky fireworks. These are the sad ones that <laughs> that when they explode. I think one of the one of the comments was when they explode, it'll be a sad trombone sound or something, and and that made me laugh because yeah, that that's how um, if you don't take some of these things seriously. Um, that's what it, it becomes. It becomes this farce around doing things that, that we always need to do because the budget is there. And if you don't spend the budget for fireworks, then what else are you going to spend it on? And and we all know that there are millions of other things that they could spend all the money that they're having for fireworks on. Um, but I commend some of the, at least talking about it and maybe holding them accountable. Um and in moments like these, it, it's important that we recognize leaders that want to lead and want to do things differently. And those that just give in to status quo and and don't want to shake the boat too much. And I think that's what you're seeing is that with this nonsense around sad fireworks versus celebrations. It's yeah. It, it... Yeah. I mean, celebration and mourning are two very different fucking acts. And like fireworks is not how we typically mourn in this country, uh, especially as like white Canadian settler types. But uh, you bring up an excellent point about the budget, which I want to highlight right now. And I actually did a bit of reporting and asked the city of Edmonton what their budget this year is for fireworks. And they're spending $250,000 this year. That's about $60,000 more than usual that is uh, that is spent on these fireworks. They're spending a little extra money this year in order for signage. They're going to live stream it. And apparently, according to the, the comms person that emailed me back, they're making the fireworks uh, taller. They're, they're putting more propellant in it. They're going to be heightening the show in order for people to be able to see it from farther away. Um, so yeah, I mean that is uh, both both a, a number. I had no idea what the number was going to be. I thought it was going to be high, but just as a point of reference, a unit of affordable housing, like a rough rubric for an for a unit of affordable housing, is about two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, the, that's when you get into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's that's a lot of money that can be used for other things. And I I know city council was kind of wavering on whether or not they were going to have fireworks this year and whatever wavering it on whether or not you want to celebrate the day. But I think um, it's, it's very important that we continue to have these conversations around. Yeah. What are, what are you celebrating? Um, there's a fantastic, I do it. I tend to do it every year on national indigenous people's day, but there's this speech from George Erasmus, who was leader of the national Indian brotherhood in the eighties. And then, then in the nineties, um, around i think it was at the time canada 125 and basically talking about what are we going to celebrate are we going to celebrate that the canadian flag which was adopted in 1956 a lot of people don't know that that it's only like 70 years old is older than the rights of indigenous people to vote in this country like these are the types of things that you are celebrating on canada day and when you start to put it into perspective maybe it's not the right way and maybe you have no reason to celebrate whatsoever. 
Yeah, and I think the question of, of canceling Canada Day and reducing it to kind of this stupid, stupid kind of uh, cancel culture binary is incredibly unhelpful. I mean, I still want a fucking holiday in July. I'm not going to lie. I don't want to work. Uh, I don't want to get rid of the day off. But I think how you celebrate it is incredibly important, right? And so like in Australia, you have, you know, examples of like Invasion Day or Survival Day on what is typically called Australia Day. Um, you know, I think that is an example of of something that can be done. Um, and it's, it is, you know, I don't know. I've, I still don't know what I'm going to do for the day. It's so fucking hot. It's hard to plan that far in the future. But like, what are you going to be doing this Canada Day? What do you think Canada Day should become? Yeah, this, uh, this year, um, I, we we normally don't celebrate Canada Day at all as a family. Uh, we tend to shy away from from events and whatever else. Uh, this year we will be. My wife has taken the initiative to lead a uh, a memorial walk in her community in the south of the province um, to honor the missing children, and namely um, children lost to residential schools. Their community was very heavily impacted by. She's from the Stony Tribe, so they were very heavily impacted by the McDougals and their whole um, shyster kind of uh, activities in the South uh, and their connection to Edmonton as well, and the McDougals, George and John, the the reverends. Um, so we'll be holding a walk uh, to subvert Canada Day and encouraging attendees to wear orange, to not wear red and white, to not fire off their fireworks and, and whatever else. Um because we we didn't there were stories of kind of her family and 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 my family's experiences in residential schools um but we actually found out that one of her uncles had died in residential schools as a child so we were able to find his name and find some of the records and that is one of the other reasons why uh there is no reason to celebrate Canada Day because children were killed at the hands of state and the church Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the, I gotta keep coming back to the fireworks because the one of the places that prominently decided to to stop having, uh, or to not have a fireworks celebration this year was the city of St. Albert, just just north of Edmonton, and one of the reasons why they decided to cancel their Canada Day fireworks celebration was because Mission Hill, this is where they set their fireworks off in St. Albert, is according to the city of St. Albert a quote-unquote likely spot to contain the unmarked graves of former Indian residential school students. And setting off Canada Day fucking fireworks uh, over top of the graves, the literal unmarked graves of the victims of Indian residential schools is like a little too on the nose. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think and th- I commend them for some of their initial comments, but then I also... Uh, feel the obligation to chastise them a little bit for walking back on some of those comments later on. If you, I was watching some of the social media, and as soon as the pushback started around, oh, you guys are canceling Canada Day and all these other things, they went back and, well, you know, it's not COVID optimal to set them off there, and, and like all these other real reasons why they they decided to do it, and then they tacked on, well, in honor of our 
indigenous residents who may be traumatized by so again it, it's this wishy-washy kind of approach but um yeah no the mission hill the bright where bishop grandin and lacombe built their mission and took kids and as depicted in the famous mural um that that's the area so again um if there are graves there what else have we been doing there? We've been setting off fireworks there for however long. Maybe it's time we look at somewhere else. Maybe it's time um, we consider we reconsider the whole thing. And yeah, maybe we do something differently with the money. I don't know. Maybe it, it makes more sense than wasting it all for seven minutes of fun. Yeah, and, and St. Albert, I think, is important to talk about. I want to go into a little more detail on St. Albert and the, re- and the residential schools that were there because, one, it's what's close to where we are, and it's like a handy point, but it is like the first real outpost in Alberta uh, of the kind of like Catholic um, you know, church. And they really just got set up. That was their home base. That's where they got started. And I don't want just want this podcast to be a bunch of hot takes on how Canada Day is canceled. I think, you know, the work of discovering these mass graves and bringing these children's bodies back to their families and communities is ongoing. And I think St. Albert is a good place to examine. Uh, You know, it's it was, um, you know, founded in 1861 by Father Albert Lacombe. He was one of the very first Catholic missionaries to ever come uh, this far west. you know, there's like 66,000 people living there today. Um, and yeah, it is home to two separate residential school sites. Um, you know, one that we know for sure has uh, unmarked graves. Like there is <laughs> a carn that says Aboriginal Cemetery uh, right behind an in, uh, a former Indian, Indian residential school um, uh, in the, the, the St. Albert Municipal Cemetery there. And so the Uville one, the one where they were uh, going to set the um, the fireworks off at, where they're not anymore going to set the fireworks off at, I don't know a ton about that one. It was run by the Grey Nuns of Montreal, uh, of the, the Grey Nuns Hospital fame here in Edmonton, which is a fact I learned recently. Uh, it burnt down in 19... It was one of the first residential schools as well, but it burnt down in 1948. Uh, now there's like a retirement living home there, which again, must be truly cursed. Um but, but I don't know a ton about that one. The one that I think is worth uh, further examination is the Edmonton Indian Residential School, which uh, was run by the Methodists, which then became the United Church. Uh, and that was run from 1924 to 1968. Uh, it replaced the Industrial School in Red Deer. And the Industrial Schools are like a residential school precursor where um, you know they were supposed to teach... They were kid- they were still doing the same thing of like kidnapping indigenous kids and putting them in boarding school, but there was it was much more like job training focused. Um, yeah, I, I think I think with yeah, I think what what a lot of people are coming to the understanding now is that, uh, and I see it on social media a lot, and even in conversations with people that I know that that maybe the the whole school aspect is clouding people's better judgment on a lot of these institutions like maybe we should change the language now and maybe we should just start calling them what they were they were institutions slash concentration camps slash prisons right that that people were sent to to live in um from the age of three years old or even 
younger to on in most cases 16 to 18 years old so you're talking about people's entire uh youth and 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 lifespan as adolescents being spent in these institutions and and yeah and they there was very little um schooling at all i think through some of my my learnings um through some of my learnings just talking about people who came out of the institutions and having um, no more than like a grade six to eight education, even though they've been there till they were, till they were 18 years old. And, and yeah, and the Uville um, on top of the hill, very prominent space. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a, the narrative of St. Albert overall is that um, it's this place that, that celebrates kind of the Francophone culture and Grandin and other people, but really misses the mark around um the important settlements that were here before the Métis, of course, with the connection to the French were around Sturgeon Lake, Sturgeon river and the big Lake community. Um, very prominent farming was happening here before Grandin even got here, but then it all kind of gets whitewashed for him, St. Albert, Lacombe. And then of course, um, the institutions that, that we're talking about, the industrial, especially the industrial one. Yeah, and and the Edmonton the Edmonton Indian Residential School was a particularly brutal example of like how these things were not schools. I mean, the Edmonton Indian Residential School was essentially an agricultural work camp. Students spent half a day in class. Uh, the rest of the day, they were tending to crops and animals. And when it was harvest time, most of the boys were just working full-time days uh, on the harvest. There were 500 acres under cultivation, as well as dairy cows, chickens, pigs, uh, other animals. I mean, this this was the food. Not only did they produce food for themselves, but also this food went to market and proceeds went to the school. Um you know uh, the the united church has has uh, a decent archive site of this the information that they've collected and made public um, from their archives on the residential schools that they operate and i think it's worth kind of pulling a quote from that uh from it's from uh, the childrenremember.ca and this is from the like from the own website not not this is a quote from them so there's no author but it's from that website Quote, the emphasis on farm work at the expense of academic study was a constant source of friction between the school on the one hand and the children, their parents, and visiting inspectors on the other. In 1930, one boy who pleaded to be returned home or transferred to another school wrote, I just went to school three days since I came here. That isn't why my father sent me here to work. He sent me here to go to school and study hard and to learn to read and write. The boy stated that he had to have someone write the letter for him because he had not yet learned anything at all. Indian agent, Indian agent Mortimer, to whom the boy was writing, confirmed that he found it difficult to convince parents in his agency in British Columbia to send their children to Edmonton because of complaints that the students were continually working on the farm, thereby getting little or no education. Yeah, I think um, that's that's a perfect example of what life in these institutions was like, and especially the industrial ones. And we talked a little bit about how the proceeds went to the school. Well, when you have when you have the school managing all these funds and then getting grants from the government to run the school, my experience and looking at some of the records has been some of these people get sticky fingers and then money starts disappearing. So not only were they working people's children's hands to the bone, but then they were then pro- pocketing the proceeds afterwards and then doing things like 
land speculation and everything else on the side. So creating entire industries on the backs and, and on the work of these child labor uh, victims. Yeah, this is agricultural child slavery, and it didn't stop until 1953. The half-day system uh, of agricultural child slavery wasn't stopped, wasn't put to rest until 1953. Um, You know, children at this school were also forced to dig unmarked graves, as reported by Keith Jarine of the Edmonton Journal uh, just this past year. In 2003, in the Edmonton Journal, George Burton told the Edmonton Journal about the times he was ordered to to dig graves, including those for the caskets of children. This is a quote from George Burton again. I had a lot of nightmares about that. We had to dig these holes so far down. I remember yelling and screaming in my sleep because I thought I was going to get buried in one of of those holes. There's hundreds of them around here. And, you know, I think if we were to find another mass grave in the next short while. I think it's very likely that we are going to be finding one behind the site of, or on the site of the former Edmonton Edmonton Indian residential school. And, uh, you know, there's, there's already two separate markers at the St. Albert municipal cemetery, which is what this place is now. One just says Aboriginal cemetery on it. Um, that's it with two dates on it, like 1946 to 1966. Um, There's no further information attached to this boulder with a plaque on it. Um, So what we know is that there were markers there. There was the, the, when the uh, cemetery passed into the hands of the city of St. Albert, I believe it came into disrepair and there's a fire and a lot of the stones that were there were, were destroyed. And there's another car in there as well uh, with the, these, these folks at least get names and the death, uh, the date of their death. And that is 98 Inuit uh, who died at the Charles Campbell hospital were buried at this, uh, at this cemetery attached to the residential school. And that's a whole other kettle of fish that I think is worth reopening uh, with you, Rob. And that is the story of the Charles Campbell Indian hospital. Yeah. And, a, uh, uh, the Charles Campbell hospital soon to be, um, blossoming condos and trendy downtown, uh, living, living neighborhood. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A truly cursed fucking development. If there ever was one, this was the largest Indian hospital to ever exist. It operated from 1946 to 1968. It's in this, you know, otherwise quiet tree-lined mature neighborhood, North central Edmonton, Inglewood is the neighborhood, but it is an incredibly evil and haunted place. This was segregated healthcare delivery for indigenous people also a tuberculosis sanatorium where a lot of Inuit were sent, which is, again, we did, we could do a whole other podcast on how Canada handled that. But what, what do you know about the Charles Campbell? What, what do you think people need to know about it? Well, uh, I, I used to work in kind of um, the security industry. So I, I know people who used to work there, uh, back when back back before it was being developed and it was just an empty building, they used to do private security. So I know that that building is extremely haunted. Um, I definitely would want to buy a condo there, um, no, no matter what the cost. Um, and 
it, it was a, an Indian hospital. The, the Inuit have a history of being uh, sent there for tuber- tuberculosis. And you mentioned the graves and the cairn in St. Albert. Um, but it raises other questions about what about the, the, the other Indians that would have died there uh, due to sickness? Where are they buried? Um, if they don't have a cairn like the Inuit do and a record of it, then, then where were they buried? I know that um, people would spend many, many years there. Uh, my musham, uh, Max McCree, um, I didn't learn this until just before he had passed away, but he had spent the better part of uh, 10 years on and off in that institution. Um, and and when he would be sent there, it was because the doctors back home either didn't want to treat you or couldn't treat you anymore. And one of the re- and one of the best treatments or the only treatment they had at the time for tuberculosis was was bed rest. So basically he was bed stricken for the better part of 10 years. He had tuberculosis in the bones in his leg. Um, and the only thing to do to pass the time was to pick up skills and abilities. He became a leather worker. Um, he made some fantastic wallets and other kind of implements by gaining his skills there on his own. Um, so it has, a, I have a personal connection there as well. And, and, and then the real upsetting thing is that um, even into his old age, he still had problems with his legs due to tuberculosis. He had things, tumors that would flare up and, and whatever else. So an institution that was supposed to be curing people actually never ended up curing a majority of the people that went there and, and actually probably made their lives worse by pulling them away from their families and whatever else. So it is a, yeah, it is a very, very evil place. Um, and probably stricken with graves and, and remains, um, throughout the land. No experiments were medical experiments were done there. Forced sterilizations were done there. Uh, you know, women would go and deliver children there and then discover later that they had been sterilized. Um, you know, the hospital was involved in the 60s scoop. Children would be warehoused there before being adopted out to <coughs> white families. You know, it's, and it's, you're, you're right. It's, Long been speculated that there are unmarked graves at the Charles Campbell. Chief uh, Calvin Bruno of the Papas Chase First Nation has called for a thorough investigation of the site since 2017. He was uh, quoted recently in just recently, like 2021 in June, uh, about why this still needs to happen. Uh, quote, it was known as an Indian hospital because that's where a lot of our people went back then. And a lot of people came and got treated and left, but some didn't make it back home, said Calvin Bruno. Uh, it. While there is a dedicated indigenous cemetery in St. Albert, Bruno believes strongly that there are adults and children still buried there and has wanted ground searches for decades. It's more than a belief, Bruno said. We have research and documents, even a map that shows that the southeast corner of the property is where potential human remains are. Either it's covered up or human remains get moved, he added. I'd like to investigate there still and see definitively if there is a cemetery. Yeah. Uh, I cannot imagine wanting to live on that site. Uh, developer, oh, Gene Dub owns it. And it just actually recently in just like November of last year, it got rezoned like the city of city council, like approved a rezoning that would allow it to be taller and more dense. So I don't know if they're putting more buildings on the site, but this, this, this is a fucking crime scene. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think, and I think the plan is to have, some sort of urban village there with townhomes and all these other uh, surrounding the large kind of uh, 
apartment building slash former Indian hospital. Uh, yeah, no, it, 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 all these spaces and places, there is a crime scene aspect to it. Um, and again, like downtown Edmonton in the Rossdale area, before kind of 1950, 1960, any kind of development down there, I'm sure and certain would have come across human remains, bones, things like that, that they would have just thrown into another pile if they would have seen them at all and then thought nothing else of them because there was a lack of protocols and other things in place back then. So again, the likelihood that there's something buried on this site specifically, it, it is very high. And I would encourage people to maybe stop for a second, think about what the ramifications are, and then maybe do the due diligence to do a proper search that has probably never been done and see if there are remains there that need to be put to rest because um, some of these, some of our people and some of our ancestors need some closure and need some answers. And um, that's, it. it's not an excuse anymore to say uh, we don't have the time or money to do it because uh, COVID has changed a lot of these conversations. Yeah, I mean, there was a relationship between the hospital and the the residential school that existed. Like, that's where the Inuit who died got buried. Uh, I have to assume that when uh, children got sick at the Edmonton Indian Residential School, that if they did receive treatment, they would have received it at, you know, the, the Charles Camp. So, like, there, there is a relationship there that needs to be explored further, uh, as well as the grounds around that uh, hospital need to be uh, inspected further as well. But, um, you know, I don't have a smooth segue into this one, but there's uh, no other way to say it in that we have seen uh, a lot of what I would call direct action against, uh, you know, the buildings and the statues uh, that were associated with this historical, with this genocide. And so, um, you know, what, what did we see? We saw churches burned down in BC. We saw a church lit on fire just recently in Calgary or just outside of Calgary, uh, the Siksika, uh, though the building did not, uh, wasn't seriously damaged. Um, you know, we've seen the statue of the Pope vandalized here in Edmonton, you know, Bishop Grandin's, uh, well, let's reserve that. Let's reserve the Bishop Grandin stuff for the other stuff. But what are your thoughts on this direct action, uh, that we're seeing Rob? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's long past due for one um again and and it's this ongoing conversation of what is canada like canada is the erasure of indigenous peoples and their monuments and their structures with the erection of all these other kind of people and institutions and now we're seeing a resurgence and maybe a reclamation in a sense of that space back by toppling some of these statues and churchill was painted red and and like why do we have a statue of churchill anyways like has anyone ever kind of opened up that conversation around why do we have why do we have a statue of pope john paul ii was he here did he stand on that spot did he give some sort of sermon from the mound there? Um, and and then the churches and the other buildings being burnt down, I think that's also kind of a, an action of reclamation because um, a lot of people, and even indigenous people, and especially where I'm from, Treaty Number 8 territory, which is much more 
secluded in some instances than Treaty Number Six um, and Seven. The impact of Catholicism and and Christianity in our communities um, is is very very plain on the face, and you have leaders that are born again Christians and things like that, and 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 not that there's anything wrong with religion, but when you start to cloud over our indigenous beliefs and our indigenous systems and structures for buildings like churches and other things. And, and it, it gets very convoluted and it gets very difficult to argue one over the other when one hand's shaking the other. So in my area, a lot of the communities, one, a couple of the buildings that will be there for sure is you'll have a band office and then you'll have a church. And there's always going to be a church there because um, it was difficult to get them out of the community. It was much more secluded. They probably had more impact in some of those communities as well. So it's it's as a um, a person who was raised in some of the Catholic faith and and participated in early on in, in, in my life on some of those things and learned about the commandments and all these other things and then um, reconnected with indigeneity and our true ways of knowing and doing and spirituality. Um, I, I commend, <laughs> I might get in trouble, but I commend people who are taking those, some of those direct actions because um, some of these people, although they were following the word of God, were not very good people. And I made some comments around George McDougall. The McDougall Church was burned down in the Morley Reserve a number of years ago. There's a movement now to rebuild it by um, church organizations in in the town of Cochrane and other places. Um, that guy was a, a straight up straight up colonizer, straight up asshole who who stole uh, Old Man Buffalo or the Manitou Stone that sits in the Ram right now. Uh, another stolen artifact. He stole it from the Iron Creek, even when we told him not to touch it because um, it'll have ramifications. He stole it and took it down to Treaty Number Seven, where the church was, because he wanted people to follow him there. So again, either it's about the faith or it's about these individuals. And when you start to look at instances like this, it gets harder and harder to digest that they were doing things for the greater good and they were just interested in their own self worth and self interest. And I. And I posted on Twitter, the person that painted the John Paul II statue. Yeah, I have, I have, I have little, I have 100% certainty that the EPS and others are going to go all out to try to find this person. And I saw pictures of cops taking fingerprint samples from the, the paint and whatever else. So they're going to go all out to try to find this individual. I will happily contribute to a bail fund for that person because, um, because these institutions that do not pay taxes at all um, have been afforded way, way too much flexibility and leniency in society. And now it's time to start putting them under the micro microscope. Yeah, direct action uh, gets the good, gets the goods. And I, uh, yes, I too will happily contribute to the bail fund of if the police ever find the person who vandalized the Pope John Paul II statue. Though I, I think uh, pretty unlikely that they find the person unless someone snitches or comes out. Um, the other uh, thing that has kind of happened with remarkable speed has been 
anything attached to Bishop Grandin has now uh, is getting its name changed. We've seen the Bishop Grandin name come off a school in Edmonton. We've seen it come off a school in Calgary. The uh, the LRT stop that is named after Grandin here is getting its name changed, though I don't know what it's being replaced with. Um, the, the horrendous mural that was in Grandin Station <laughs> has now been finally fucking covered up. Um, you know, this was a person who was, he was one of the key architects of the Indian residential school system. And it's, uh, you know, we are now seeing that like, we're just not going to stand for having his name on everything anymore. But I'd still like to point out that the media arm of the uh, Edmonton Archdiocese is called Grandin Media. And uh, I haven't seen whether they're going to be changing the name of that institution uh, any time soon. What what are your thoughts on all this, all the, the Grandin stuff happening? Well, yeah, I think um, he, he was, he was very important to um, the residential school system. And I would say, um, and through some of the readings of the TRC report and whatnot, like he is the guy, he is the guy that came up with the idea that if you take the Indians out of the community and you house them, apart from their parents and apart from their families, you can better assimilate them by not letting them go back to their communities. And there's a famous quote that's attributed to Johnny McDonald around, um, if they, if they go home, they'll, if they come to school, they'll be civilized. But if they go home at night, they'll be in an Indian, Indian family with Indian customs. And they'll never really get rid of that in, and or something to that effect those words from John A were taken from some of the things that Bishop Grandin was writing and saying and doing. So like he is, he is the guy. Um, so um, for, for things to be named after him, for things to carry his, his history forward, his legacy with the church and the Francophone uh, community, um, very, very troubling, of course, for for indigenous people um, and long past due that we start to take some of that name away and start to reimagine what our relationship is apart from him and what role he played in in such detrimental impacts to indigenous people. Um, and things can happen very quickly. And we talked about it a little bit earlier about the money and the impacts of money and the cost of doing things. Well, obviously it's costly to have to keep cleaning a structure or a wall <laughs> or a mural. And it makes more sense to, to just take it down so that you don't have to keep cleaning because your budget can only allow for so much flexibility. Right. So um, that's one way to do it. The other way is to convince the hearts and the minds of the people doing the work that, yeah, this guy wasn't that great. Maybe we shouldn't be honoring him. And I think both of those things are happening at the same time in parallel. I think it's it's fantastic that we're starting to see things happen in a matter of hours. Like the Edmonton Catholic School voted to remove his name. And then within a matter of hours, the mural was gone and, and the name was gone. And um, I have to commend the mayor for for kind of pushing some of these things because in difficult times like this, leaders lead. It takes a leader to kind of kick the can first. Um, and I think that's what the mayor and, and council kind of initiated, even though there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of ridiculous conversation around it, much more than really needed to happen. But um, 
I think it's it's a step in the right direction, and especially with Grandin, if if we're going to be talking about um, toppling kind of Christopher Columbus and some of these other kind of genocidal people, Grandin is right up there, and and mm. and I think it's he's on the same level. So I think we have to do away with with him. We have to rewrite the history books and retell a better story. And I sit, I I work on the kind of the grand and working group. I've been involved in some of those conversations. Um, I wasn't here when the the mural project uh, with Aaron Paquette was initiated back when the TRC was coming here. But um, even in doing some of this work, I had some own reflection around um, looking at the TRC report, seeing the sections that dedicate to grand and seeing the sections where they talk about him being the the guy of residential school mentality and the reason why these thousands of kids are dead is because he decided that well we should just house the kids and then not send them home um and then to and then to welcome one of the final events here to the city and to celebrate a mural of him by adding on these other indigenous murals i i i struggle with that thought process and i struggle with house maybe in the back room somewhere, maybe Murray and other people like, like, what the hell is this shit? Like, how are they going to, how can they have a mural to this guy and then do this? Like, I, I struggle with that, but um, I think it's heading in the right direction now. And maybe it's an opportunity to tell a broader story. And, and I commend people for sticking with it. I commend Aaron for, for being there at the forefront and to, for standing by his art and, and his pieces down there are fantastic. I think it's just a matter of the work it took to get this other piece covered up and then eventually replaced was probably a lot harder than it needed to be. It was a lot of fucking effort back then, even just to get the, the one, the, the, the add on murals. Whereas six, seven years later, we're just like, fuck this, we're getting rid of it. And I think that is an encouraging sign that as a society, we're just like, we're not going to fucking pussyfoot around it anymore. We're just going to fucking do it. And, you know, it's encouraging to see. I mean, there's still a statue of Frank Oliver in this fucking town, though. So it's not like we've uh, we figured it all out. Um, you know, the capacity for action by various levels of government is high right now, and that needs needs to be taken advantage of. But, you know, Jason Kenney has set aside $8 million to uh, search um, you know, these residential school sites for unmarked graves. There are 25 fucking Indian residential schools in Alberta, the most of any fucking province. Like $8 million sounds like a lot. It's it's not actually that much money to actually do this work. Well, and, and that's, and that's the, I've seen other kind of messaging and information coming out that those are the, those were the federally supported schools, the 25. So there are, uh, in communities in the north and throughout the province, other institutions, other structures that were not federally supportive that could have graves and other kind of burials on their sites as well. So $8 million is is a drop in the bucket. And I've seen other kind of conversations around in a national plan of the 100 and 100 plus schools that exist, a, a minimum of a billion dollars required to properly search the records to properly do grand penetrating radar to properly do any excavations that need to happen. Um, it's going to take a little bit of a lot of, a lot of money and, and there needs to be a commitment up front to want to do this. And also a reflection on the failings of, of the commitment through the TRC and the, 
the commission and other things where, yeah, they weren't allowed to, to talk about some of these things. They weren't allowed to explore because the government shut down and didn't give them the money that they needed to properly do this. So again, like many other things, we're seeing a fallout of certain governments inability to do the right thing and and an inability to want to take it a step further and i recognize the eight million dollars but the thing that always kind of sticks to me and and i really do not appreciate is this speaking point that jason keeps hammering out of a moral obligation oh it's a moral obligation uh it's a moral obligation to allow indigenous people to participate in the economy it's a moral obligation to find these children well sure if you if you want to do the bare minimum it's also probably a legal obligation through our <laughs> our treaty agreements and our treaty rights it's probably a legal obligation if any provincial institutions were funded by the province at any at any time so again the moral obligation is the bare minimum and i think that's kind of a, a scapegoat for the other real impacts that are connected to some of these things um but it, it, it goes over with some of the leaders, some other people around a positive step forward. But it, it's a drop in the bucket. There needs to be more. There needs to be uh, not only an action of finding them, but then what do we what do we do after you find them? Because there's going to be more graves. There's going to be more sites. There's going to be reimagining and revisiting some of these other kind of um, occurrences in, in the province of Alberta. So we have... Uh, the Bobtail Reserve south of Muskegee that was surrendered. We have the Michelle Band. We have Sharphead, which, again, if you go in into Indigenous communities and talk to them about Sharphead, they will tell you about how the Sharphead people were poisoned by a rancher in the area. Some of them were shot and killed as they were all kind of starving and struggling and being poisoned. Uh, and then they were buried in a mass grave. And then the province, through partnership, created a commemoration site of, a, of this mass grave, but uh, not much more after that and not a real exploration of the, the real history that, that happened in some of these places. Um, but I hope it opens up a conversation around what we should be doing for Indigenous people and in some of these experiences. Um, I've been to um, the greasy grass and I've seen the markers down there of George Armstrong, Custer, and some of the other people that died there, um, and the the big hoopla around celebrating their life. We have sites like that in Alberta. We have uh, Frog Lake, which was a site of a an event. I call it the Frog Lake Incident during the rebellion and during the resistance, um, the 1885 resistance, where you have markers paid to Indian agents who were very bad people and there is little recognition of the suffering of indigenous people in that area, the truth of what happened on that day. Um, so I hope it all of these conversations move forward to uh, real action and real recognition of of what uh, what Canada is really about and what Canada Day is really about. Yeah, it's it's truth and reconciliation. It's a combo platter. You need the truth first. And like the fucked up part of this is that like in the TRC's 94 calls to action, there is a whole section called missing children and burial information with five separate recommendations. And, you know, this is, this is not new. There was, I, I think the TRC identified 3000 plus children that died in, in residential school care with, with the 
with the willing acknowledgement in the report that it was like, this number is likely much larger. And I think what's relatively unique about Canada's settler colonial project, and this is not a point made by me, it's a point made by a guy named David Tuff, is that the regime, the regime that carried out the genocidal project of residential schools and everything else that was done uh, in the name of assimilation are still in power, you know, and they still enjoy the wealth they gained from the land they stole. And like other places in the world where terrible things have happened, you know, those regimes aren't around anymore. You know, the king of Belgium is still not in charge of Belgium. And even though he genocided, you know, 10 million people in the Congo, you know, there, he doesn't, the, the, his descendants don't stand up on a, on a throne and get like worshiped anymore. Uh, and so to bring this all back to Canada Day, you know, do you, do you think it would be appropriate to celebrate the continued existence of the Belgian monarchy? You know, like when, when people who are trying to defend Canada Day point out that bad things have happened in other places, it's, it's not the flex you think it is simply because all the conservatives and liberals and all the people, all the rich and powerful merchants who gained so much from the theft of indigenous land are all still the rich and wealthy people who run Canada. They never faced any consequences and they still control the resources and the economy and the political structures of this country. And so canceling Canada Day is what a reconciliation looks like. It is a symbol, yeah, of course, but it is a way to show that we are serious about addressing Canada's historical atrocities. And it's, it's not about rewriting history. It's about getting to the truth part of truth and reconciliation. And, uh, you know, I still want it to be a holiday, though. I'm just saying I still want my day off in July. Yeah, I think um, I, th- I think it's it's this conversation around like, yeah, what are what are what are you what are we celebrating? Like what what and if people and if Canadians really thought about it, um, all we're really celebrating is the the moving of a piece of paper from one part of the ocean to another part of the ocean that's all (laughs) we're celebrating is that the transference of this bna act and the repatriation of the constitution if you want to get technical from dominion day baby yeah Yeah. from from (laughs) the queen's desk to parliament hill that's all all the other relationships still exist we still recognize the queen as the head of state and the crown. Like, like what, what, what are Canadians really celebrating? It's, is a piece of paper um, without any of the substance behind it, because we sure haven't honored the treaties. We sure haven't, um, haven't given indigenous people their due diligence and, and what they're owed. Um, and we definitely haven't reconciled anything. So really, we're just celebrating the, this flag that, that is 70 years old and a piece of paper that really doesn't give us any authority to do anything other than um, make things difficult and continue to lose court cases. So um, so it's a really, I hope, I hope this day is a day of reflection, a day of rest for people. If you're not going to celebrate, at least you can still take a day of rest and not have to do any of the the hokey nonsense bullshit that you used to do. Maybe you can find the time to put on an orange shirt and to, to think about what it means to live where you're living and know that maybe, maybe this land title that you have for your house, maybe it used to be a reserve. Maybe there were people buried here before you moved in and they got shipped somewhere else. Like 
all those conversations and questions should be entering Canadians' minds at this time and hopefully leading to some sober second thoughts and reflection around what it means to be Canadian, what it means to have this relationship with Indigenous people and how we can help each other um, move forward together. That's a fantastic uh, place to end it, Rob. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if people want to follow along with the work you do, how can people find you on the internet? I am at uh, on Twitter at Nihiel Rob. I have a number of articles out there that you can Google. They're on Edmonton City as a Museum. I am a research fellow with the Yellowhead Institute, and we did a fantastic piece called Cashback that everyone should read, every Canadian should read to learn about Indian money so that we don't keep having this conversation around taxpayers' dollars and all that other bullshit because that is just a bunch of nonsense fed to people and Canadians. Um, and I'm on active on my Twitter and always commenting on something else or the other. <laughs> And he, you are published on on the Progress Report as well. So uh, we're always grateful when Rob, uh, when you write for us as well. Um, you know that's that's the show, folks. If you like the podcast, if you want to keep hearing more podcasts like this, um, you know the few things you can do. The biggest one, I'm just going to skip right to the chase, is to become a monthly donor. There's a link in the show notes, or if you go to theprogressreport.ca/patrons, you put in your credit card, you um, fill out a few data points, hit go, five, ten, fifteen dollars a month, whatever you can afford. We really appreciate it. Also, if you have any notes, uh, thoughts, or comments, I'm very easy to reach. I am on Twitter as well, and at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thanks again to Rob for being an incredible guest. Thank you for listening. And goodbye.